0: Hey, you're listening to Block Thinking with Werner Puchert and Jonathan Gall. Hey, Werner. Yeah, What's we happening? Have, we have a course today. So, yeah. Hamad, can you introduce yourself?
1: Sure. Uh, it's Ahmed, first of all. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
2: Damn it, man. We're going to talk about that, Jonathan. <laughs>
1: That's okay. You flipped two of the letters around. It happens.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Man. this is going It's so going to be fun.
1: funny because each one of you guys, you know, you're, we're each going to have a different pronunciation of the name, right? There's the French pronunciation, the Polish one yeah. and the Arab one. So uh, yeah. Okay. Introduce myself. Um, okay. So these days I'm a product designer and a leading design at a startup based out of Toronto uh, called TimeSaved and we're building software for staffing agencies. Before that, I've been in a, various number of startups and so kind of in a a few different roles as well like alternating between like developer and designer most recently before that i was at 500px for a little bit a lot of like early stage startups with like three four people and then my very first like work experience was in like 2013 i was a front-end developer at an agency in toronto where we were rebuilding walmart.ca from the ground up boom and i joined like three weeks before launch as like junior front end developer. Oh hey yeah, we're building Walmart.ca. Um, here's forty thousand lines of JavaScript, no framework. Figure it out,
2: <laughs> <laughs> dude. This is crazy, man. I went um, just just from my side, right? Before I come, because I want to make a comment about that, right? Um, yeah. Just thanks for joining us, man. And we we mixing things up a little bit by having an additional co-host. And we really want you to be a co-host, right? So you are more than welcome to make fun of Jonathan's accent because that is a privilege a co-host <laughs> has you know, on this show. Um, but then the thing is, like, it's interesting that you said you did this um, this Walmart um, show, right, starting off your career. First of all, that's that that's really crazy to do. But then also, it, it, for a moment, it reminded me about this case, um, Hertz, you know, the car hire. And uh, Accenture, I don't know if you picked up on that on your side of the pond, because you, I mean, you're, you're in Canada, right? Mm-hmm. So um, Accenture got sued by Hertz after um, not delivering on the website. Oh, I saw but, this. Yeah, that's insane, right? So now you're telling me yeah. you're rolling in as a brand new developer, a front-end developer, and you start working on Walmart like a, th- a few weeks before... Um, the launch. Is that not a reflection sometimes of the craziness that we have to deal with in our industry?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, they were just hiring bodies at that point. Like They were just trying to fill people as fast as possible. They're like, we need to double our team in two months. But uh, really, my workflow, for the, I was only there for four months, but my workflow was very much like, you know, we have a sprint planning meeting, I get assigned a bunch of tickets, I stare at them all week, and then at the end of the week, my manager comes in and does them all for me. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> when i tried when we started our conversation one of the common points we found was that we're both world citizen um he, ex- he told about his, his career the fact that you work the work with valmart and now a designer but you have diversity in w- way over ways uh, your instagram is full of pictures from all around the world it's almost me jealous <laughs> you're an excellent <laughs> photographer by the way let's start with that too and um, what can you tell us about your your journey as a human being and as a designer and what all those you know all the trips around the world um, made you a better person a better designer what can you tell us about that
1: I think a lot of it comes from my parents because on one hand you know my mom traveled a lot as a kid and her her parents like kind of had this idea in mind. They were, they were born and raised in Baghdad in Iraq. And and it was very part of like my fam- like my mom's family's culture to say, you know what, we're going to go London for a month and we're going to go to Germany for a month. We're going to go learn all these languages and all these places. And so she kind of like carried that over to me as well. But for them, it was also out of necessity because I was born in Baghdad in uh, 1992. And so that was in the middle of the Gulf War. And so, uh, when I was only nine months old, my, my family, like basically packed everything they could into a car, took me and my brother and and drove across the border and left everything behind. And so from there, you know, just for, for our entire childhood, it was just a series of countries that were just sort of trying to find a home. It was like going from Jordan to Azerbaijan. Then we, we moved to Vancouver to Canada, um, stayed there for a while. And then they, they moved to Dubai, like we moved to Dubai as a family and and settled there for a pretty long time. So I already had like a lot of formative experiences, like in different countries. And for me, it was a happy childhood. I had no idea what my parents went through. Like I was just, you know, a happy, fun child, like, you know, enjoying whatever was in front of me, but I, I, I didn't realize until later in life what my mom had to deal with, what my dad had to deal with f- during that entire period of time. It was only maybe later when I was like, you know, uh you know, turning like 17, 18, 19. And I was seeing people who were, uh, had a more like, like I went to university in Boston and I I was seeing people who were like from around the corner and had the same group of friends their whole life. And I was like, wow, that's people do that. Like, that's so strange. Like, (laughs) um, I think it was also part of what kind of like continued that for a while is that, you know, we settled in Dubai from when I was eight years old and i dubai is an expat city so everyone there is from somewhere else you know the 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 locals are only 10 percent of the population and everyone there is is a mixture from across the world so then that entire city is is sort of experiencing the same thing that you're experiencing which is this sort of cross cultural cross cross country kind of experience
2: i mean do you do you identify yourself as kind of a because is kind of a a, a term that comes up all the time. I mean, we, we spoke about, you know, myself and Jonathan kind of play between our, we are freelancers consultants trying to build our businesses up, but there's this word coming up all the time It's like digital nomad. So people who go out and they either full time employed or, the, you know, whatever, but the where they are established is irrelevant. They work remotely. Um, do you see yourself like that? Because I heard a, I heard a rumor that you're gonna be traveling soon as well.
1: Yeah, so uh, I don't like the term for myself, um, but it's not because there's anything wrong with the words like digital nomad is technically what I've been doing this year, um, but I don't like what it's associated with these days. There's a culture around it and I don't really feel like that's the culture that I'm living.
2: Can you, can you explain a little bit? Because at the moment, like in my community it's like a super like positive buzz kind of thing. So I I would love to know your perspective on
1: it. Yeah. The the, what I'm seeing, at least when I see people who associate with that term or, you know, things like that, or there's a lot of like digital nomad retreats, I'm seeing a lot of, uh, you know, guys in their early twenties who are doing this thing as a way to go get drunk two weeks at a time around the world. You know, and I'm like, that's not what I'm doing. Like I, you know, when I when I go somewhere, like I'm either visiting friends or I'm staying there for a few months, or you know, I still have my home base here in Toronto, and so. It's just not the culture that I'm living. So I just prefer to like use a different term. I just say, oh, I'm, I'm working remotely. I'm traveling and working remotely. So that's
2: I, I buy I buy into that perspective because I also, I recently spoke to a friend of mine. She's kind of investigating this trend, right? I mean, she didn't explicitly say this to me, but I also felt like there was like an industry being built around.
1: Yeah, exactly. That.
2: Because I think some, uh, some, some, some like resorts and, uh, maybe a few, few, corporate sharks and whatever start realizing hey there's a bunch of crazy people traveling around so how can we make money out of it so you kind of have this pseudo kind of breakaway where you're going to go to Bali and work from some kind of remote place but actually it's just a bunch of people from Toronto or Poland sitting there in a room you know doing
1: well that's exactly it it's a monoculture as well so you realize you're in one of these situations and you're you're kind of out of tape like I'll, I'll give you a small example I was in Lisbon a month and a bit ago and uh, I, w- I went to a, a co-working space and like l- co-living co-working space there. And the first night it was like a like group dinner. So everyone went out to like a street food place nearby. And I was sitting there with like seven or eight people who would probably call themselves digital nomads or at least would are living like their remote work lifestyle. Um, and I, I started a conversation with them about like, oh, so like, you know, how do you guys meet people when you're abroad and like traveling alone? Like, what are your sort of strategies? And they're like, oh I don't know that's really hard to do that I don't know what to do and I was like oh okay and then like no matter where I tried to take the conversation it always ended up coming back to like oh so so you travel you, you, you work remotely huh and I was like uh-huh yeah I mean we we clearly all do and I was like yeah isn't that amazing and I was like sure and just no matter how far I tried to take that conversation in like and you know a direction that I thought would be interesting it just always seemed to come back to the same few things like Wow, you travel and you live remotely. Great. How's Lisbon? Oh great. Oh, I'm I'm from Portland. Oh, okay. Well, I'm from San Francisco. And I'm like it's just like, oh, okay, these are all kind of very similar people in just a different location.
2: <laughs> you you travel all the way to Lisbon to meet people from your own neck of the woods. That's great. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm teasing you a little bit, <laughs> right? But I mean I think it's ultimately what you're alluding to if you don't but now that brings me to this because the thing is, I'll be honest. Like um the other day my wife said to me, oh, um, yeah, we should go to, I mean, the, I think it was Barcelona or something and go do some work at work from there. So I had like two things, and I think it's maybe my corporate cubicle-ness that's still stuck in my soul. I started feeling <laughs> uncomfortable. You know, what kind of attitude do you have when you, when you travel to make sure that you don't fall into that trap of um, the pseudo nomadness?
1: Yeah, I think that's… Uh- it's a great question. There's a lot of little techniques. I was actually like writing a blog post about this recently because I because I realized from that conversation how few people know how to do this, how to travel alone, and even how to be alone in general, like in your own city. It doesn't have to be travel. Yeah. Um, and I think the first stage is just to be comfortable being alone for long enough to allow something to happen. Because I think when you're uncomfortable with that, then naturally, you're going to seek some comfort. Or maybe that's your first instinct is to be like, Oh, I feel awkward. I feel like I don't know where I'm supposed to be. I want to go for dinner, but I don't know how to go for dinner by myself. That would feel awkward to me. So then what's the quickest and sort of easiest way you can find someone to to hang out with is probably someone very much like you. So at whatever coffee shop or co-working space, you find someone else doing what you're doing. And you say, great, you're you're also a developer in a coffee shop in in Lisbon. Let's, you know, do you want to hang out? Do you want to go for dinner? And that, that's great. I mean, make some friends who are like you for sure. But if you only do that, if you keep doing that every time you feel uncomfortable, then you're never going to allow the the other things to develop.
0: No, I totally agree with that. So my mother moved in Tokyo, moved in Tokyo ten years ago, a little more than ten years ago. And at the very beginning, he told me one thing. You know, John, the one thing I'm going to do in Tokyo is never go to inner the French or English speaking meetup. That's <laughs> yeah. objective number one. I'm going to avoid all the foreigners as quickly as possible <laughs> because he had the luck to work for a Japanese company, so to be, be really involved. And he told me it's so easy to get into that kind of trap. And then it's your social network. It's the parties you're going and that's that's the end. Um, uh, and the other fact is that when you... I, I'm saying it on the other side, because in Guadeloupe, we had digital nomads. So I'm seeing it as, you know, the host of having those people coming and working and all of that. And I do think that we miss the best part of uh, coming in Guadeloupe, for example, or coming in Thailand or any countries. The best part is not the sun, I believe, because you can find sun a- anywhere, you know, especially in Poland right now. Um, but the best part is sharing with those people and, um, you know, opening yourself to them and their culture, because that will reflect to your being and you will become more understanding of the things that happens to them, to, you know, fact of the world, because you will leave them for their eyes in a way. And it's really linked to our job as designers and being able to see things in the eyes of, you know, our clients, our friends, other people. In Absolutely. General. I'm done
2: with it. I mean, I know you, you, uh, the thing is like, it's, it's actually interesting. You made that connection with, um, empathy because we, we talk about it a lot in design, but then we, we, we kind of like to flock to our own people. And that's as, as design folks, we actually need to kind of reach out and do a little bit more of uh connecting with the humans out there, especially when we go into another country. I think that's probably the richest experience.
0: That's pretty cool because it's kind of an ideal segue to the other, the other part. We wanted really to discuss about, you know, our respective origins and how it's helped us, I mean, how it influences at least us as designers. And the other part is our diversity in training because we are all designers, right? But we are all coming from an um, interesting background. I would just take it like that. So we are always in... <laughs> know about you being, you know, that developer for Walmart at the start of your career. I know there now, so we, we didn't discuss a lot about the start of your career and what you were doing. Well, me? Yeah. Oh, shit. Yeah. Do you want to start, when, do you want to
2: start from, from when I was a sign writer? <laughs> and a true story. I mean, my, I mean the, the way that I divide my career up is that I actually, I started as a developer as well. Not a lot of people know this. So, um, I, I built the only claim to, f- I didn't build Walmart, right? But I built nissan.co.za dude, I worked on that. That's my first website. So I worked on, on Nissan, uh, that's probably the only brand that people will know listening to this, um, built a CRM, coded a CRM system for Nissan from scratch and PHP, <laughs> you know, did the whole thing. It was insane. Um, and then moved into user experience design. But ultimately, I was a digital strategist for a marketing agency. So I I'm, I was completely uh, responsible for selling shit to people that they don't want. And I loved every second of it. And then in the end, I ended up at the big four firm as a consultant, kind of like playing in the... So, you know, like, it's kind of... it's, And I think, Jonathan, you're alluding to this too, is like a clusterfuck of different skill sets, which has been since I've left and gone on my own, been a bit of a Achilles heel as well, right? Because people don't know what the hell I actually do because you do so many different things. But Jonathan, maybe just a recap of your background and then we get into like how we handle this.
0: So something not a lot of people know also is that my, my original, original degree was in business. I have an MSc in business administration business and then i didn't work in sale or anything so i did a new msc in uh, business intelligence uh, and i went to work for um, um, software companies and it's very funny what you said at the beginning about you working for that company that wanted to shop bodies because in french we have a name for those companies if i translated it it's meat sellers because it's ex- <laughs> 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 and it's exactly what you do and that was my very first job I got hired out of uh, an internship for a software company called SAS for one year it was all nice but at the end of that internship they wanted me to work as a sales because they we were like you you know business you know you know, you know, obviously you have an MS, MSc in business intelligence so you know IT so you're going to be a pretty good salesman But I have no, I mean, I do not want to do that, like, at all. What I wanted to do at the time was a PhD uh, in artificial intelligence. That's what I wanted to do at that point in my life. Yeah, and I started my PhD. I started my PhD in Lyon, beautiful city in France. And I realized that um, a PhD doesn't pay shit. (laughs) Like, like, like. (laughs) And I was out of money. Um, my parents were already ready to send me back to Guadeloupe. My, pa- my dad was like, I will find somebody. We'll have a job for you. Come back to us or something, something. Um, and I was like, okay, I'm going to bet on myself. And yeah, I, uh, I found that job for a software agency. And then I stayed in uh, analytics <coughs> and software for a good decade. And after that, I moved to design. But yeah, I come from business analytics business, IT than design. So yeah, I have, I have a similar profile as like you guys.
2: Yeah, and the thing is like, um, I mean, I, I want to throw this to you, right? Because I think sometimes people think that they they need to go and study a certain field and then be an expert on it. But I, and I, I would like to know twofold, like, do you agree with my following statement? I think that having a richer background with a more diverse kind of um, exposure to different things has its benefits. Um, so, I mean... Do you agree with that? And then also then how do you position yourself in the market? Because you yourself have a kind of a varied background.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think like I I was also a teacher uh, for four years at a a, like used to be Bitmaker and is now General Assembly Toronto. Uh, So teaching design for four years, like in a boot camp. And I I took a web development boot camp when I got started like in 2013. So I've kind of seen like the boot camp experiences and how they compare to uh you know, traditional university degrees or that kind of thing, and there's definitely like a lot of value there, right? so something that you can do in a short, condensed amount of time, complete focus, complete dedication um instead of like you know half your time and you're kind of chilling while you're in your university, you're partying every weekend, you're doing all these other things, but so instead, it's just like okay, let's take a few months completely dedicate to this one thing um but I guess both of those are still like you know. Educational experiences that require you to take everything else off and go sit down somewhere and like be in a be in a classroom and completely focus on that thing. And that's, I think, really useful when you're trying to sort of develop the, the the foundation, the tree trunk of the knowledge. Like, I think, you know, Elon Musk kind of uses this analogy of like when you're first like going to learn a new field, like you need to start with that tree trunk, the foundation of that field. And then from there, you can sort of like continue expanding into branches. And then with that, like solid you know basis in place, then you don't need schooling for the for the rest of it. And whether or not you need schooling to learn the tree trunk is different for each person. I know for myself, like I've enrolled in a lot of online courses and never finished them. So having like a, a schooling environment, maybe not a bad idea, but I think it's this idea that you have to keep learning that way forever. So instead of saying, "Okay, well, I'm going to go learn something I completely don't understand," so I'm going to go to school for this amount of time, and then I'm going to keep learning about that thing in the real world. I'm going to go do a project that's going to teach me more about that thing. Um, I mean, one of the most inspirational like little moments I had was last year. I, I met up with a guy on like a networking app. He sounded like he was doing some cool stuff. He said he was like he sort of like sold off his last startup. Uh, that was working on some AI stuff, didn't like sell it for much, but enough to kind of like have some free time. And he was thinking what he wanted to do next. And, you know, he's coming from a software engineering kind of like background. And he said, like, his problem was that he always had a problem focusing, and that it was really tough for him to kind of stay on track when he was in the middle of something like that was just kind of natural in the way that he he operated and his brain worked. So he decided to kind of research and learn about that. And he eventually came upon this sort of like branch of of science that was like, you know, learning about like the different parts of the brain, you know, basic starting off with just basic neurology, neuroanatomy. And eventually figured out that there was a part in the left side of the brain here that had a lot to do with uh, verbal like awareness, verbal like processing. So when you're speaking or, or reading complex things, that that part would get lit up. And then he found out that there was an off the shelf sensor you could buy, like you could order it from China, like it wasn't like a crazy piece that, you you know, just like fairly cheap part that when when placed on a certain part of the brain could pick up signals very like, you know, not very fine tunes, but just general signals that, you know, this part of the brain is active. He built it into a pair of glasses and then made a prototype where that part of the brain, whenever it would get lit up was activating this this sensor and then Bluetooth to a phone app. So he developed this like very simple prototype that is really like, you know, it's about neurology and how neurology can, you know, tell you what you're doing and how you're focusing. And if you need like a little alert to say, hey, like just notice that you stopped focusing. And he doesn't have any background in science and biology and neurology. But he had an attitude that, hey, you know what? If I want to learn, I don't need to be a PhD about this. And I was like, damn, like I am so inspired by this.
2: <laughs> the fact that when you're like, when you when you're really focused, you're kind of in a state of flow. So in a way, this thing could untrack when you're in a state of flow, which is actually very interesting in itself, right? Because um, there's, a, there's an awesome book, um, I think we've mentioned it in a previous episode called um, Designing Your Life. So it's kind of how you, as a designer, can design your life and do and, and start focusing on doing things that um, is is important to you, right? Because I think sometimes people. I had a conversation with a friend of mine recently where she's kind of jumping between different jobs, and I say to you, "But you, you're looking for the the wrong thing. You don't. You shouldn't be looking for the right job. You should be looking at the right the thing that switches on your brain that takes you into flow." right so that could be man if you go into a state of flow by flipping burgers at mcdonald's that is what you should buy. if you want to be happy that's what you need to do right because you're in flow i mean that would but and that could be quite interesting in the sense of like um you know like having that guy's device to see because the, the thing is if you want to find what you're most attracted to doing as a career or as a as a as a you know as as work it's to kind of find when you're in flow and kind of note down even in a book said like write down when you're, you kind of notice like, fuck, uh, two hours just disappeared. What were you doing in that two hours? That's kind of maybe what you should think about doing as a job. Um, The other thing I wanted to note, um, what what triggered what you just said, um, and I think this is super important, maybe more than my last ramble, is that um, sometimes as designers, um, we get interested in something and we get um, kind of, disillusioned or dissuaded from pursuing that because we think, ah, oh, we are not brain scientists. But I think it's, I think if you have a spark of an idea and you have curiosity, you can go into that direction. But you know what? There's a shitload of people out there that are keen to help you. I think, it. you know, like sometimes we think of ourselves as being these lone little islands doing stuff. And I've never really, like I think like that from time to time, but then I'll jump on the phone to Jonathan. Like, Jonathan, I just had this idea. And then Jonathan will go, I know a guy. If he knows the guy. He knows the guy. Right. And I think we, we, and I think, I also think that um, people like Elon Musk and those kind of characters, they kind of tap into that space quite well. Because, I mean, Elon Musk didn't build a rocket. Right. He found the right people to get together and he's got a vision and they build damn rockets.
0: Yeah, I mean, the, the vision point is something, I mean, it's very relevant to the book uh, that I'm finishing right now. So I'm reading Zero to One from Peter Phil. So whatever you think about Peter Phil as a human being and his goal, goals. Um, so in Zero to One, Peter Phil has this point about um, being a definite optimist. So what he says is that Our world right now is led by countries which are either definite pessimists or indefinite optimists. So what is an indefinite optimist country? So for him, the US, the current US is um, indefinite optimist, which means things will go out well Eventually, we don't know exactly what to do, but we'll just shoot you know, research, you know, throw things on the wall, and something will, will go well. And he's, fa- he's thinking that this approach is um, not relevant to our times because the reason we came to the 21st century or the innovation that made this century was with a definite, optimistic approach. I'm going to fly. That's the goal. So we are going to build machines that fly. We are going to the moon. So what do we need to go to the moon? We are. We need scientists? Okay. We need space? Okay. We need money? Okay. We will do the thing to achieve our goals. Our goals are going to be hard. No questions about that. But we are going to do the work. And it's think that the approach of just you know, doing random research and hoping that something will happen, like an experiment for Mercury, that's not going... Uh, yeah. We, we kind of found all the random things already. Not all of it, hopefully. But yeah, we need to have a definite view. Um, So, and what you're saying is exactly that. We are going to... I I, I know that it applies to me because the reason I came in design in the first place is that I wanted to build my own stuff. I was like, okay, dude, you want to build that web application. What do you need to build it? I had experience working with other folks and I was unsatisfied at the end of the day. I was like at, if I don't know at least I want to know what I don't know and going f- it, it has been one of the mo- it has been one of the most valuable things I did in my life was to go to those journey to understand okay what is backend what is front-end I know I know development but I didn't do backend and frontend before okay what is that? okay, what is UX? What is research? I'm learning every day discussing with Verner about processes, for example, design processes, designing, um, design, service design, even design, all of that. And I'm, that's um, a way of knowledge. At the end of the day, I'm not going to be expert in all of those but the mix of those is going to lead me to become a better designer. Because that's the that's the end goal. Everything else is no nurturing the fact that I'm becoming a better designer and I'm able to talk to, you know, developers, designers, whatever you do, I have some knowledge about it. Um yeah, I mean that, that's that's very really intimate. <laughs> that's how I really feel about it. And that's how I continue to learn stuff non-stop. It's a lifelong journey because You know, technology is not going to stop because you decide you're tired and you want to watch TV shows. So, yeah, that's how how I
1: see it. I'd love to ask you you guys a question then. Like, if, you, if you, you know, we kind of all seem to agree that, like, having a diversity of experiences has been really valuable. Then what's, like, a story or, like, a moment that that's really come through for you when, like, if you weren't a more diversely experienced designer, you wouldn't have picked up on something or you wouldn't have, like, seen an opportunity. To, you know, go a little further or do something a bit differently than if you were just like, so, you know, only a designer with, without that like variety of experience.
0: Okay, so on my on my side, it would be definitely working with developers. I can working with front end and back end developers. I, there is, I see other designers in my group and I see their relationships with uh, with developers and there is always this you know this battle developers designers developers designers should developers design should develop and, and all of that and all those discourse and there's a very there still to this day a lot of conflicts and we had in the past guests know on our show that were really on one end of view of that of that spectrum but on my side on the human point of view not even a technical point of view because it's not like i've i'm going to do the work of my developers right that's not my goal my but my goal is to um, explain their frustration or some of these difficulties that we can't explain because we don't have that vocabulary, that knowledge, to my, to you know, to the project managers or to the leaders on that project. Um, and when you do that, when you basically become kind of, you know, the defender. Of those developers, and they understand that you're on their side. You're not just this, you know, HPG designer who is doing his fancy dribbling stuff and his gradients and whatever. When they understand you're on their side, they treat you as part of, you know, part of the group. We are. We all have a common goal, and this guy is with us, and he understands what we can do, what is going to be difficult, and it 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 changes changes the project like literally changes the project, having this simple respect for the job they are doing. Because I'm not, I'm never going to be like, I'm not going to understand what are the differences between, uh, you know, I don't know, React 17, which is going to go and React 15, but that's not my job. My job is, okay, I know this stuff is difficult, just explain me in both terms why it's difficult, so I can sit down with the project managers and tell them, okay, can we change that? Can we move that forward or backward? Okay. But that, that, that's an example on my side, big time.
2: Yeah. I mean, I I, I kind of echo the same with you, Jonna, like in the sense of being in the team, because I think there's a there's a synergy that happens in a team when you have empathy for what happens to your team members, you can also speak their language, right? Because nothing I think annoys a developer when someone comes and, and annoys them the wrong stuff. I mean, I think the the the, the caveat here is that you shouldn't have so much empathy for the developer that you kind of then drop the ball and what you're trying to achieve from a product perspective right because you didn't have to go out still in the world and develop something that is kind of meaningful and memorable but i think in my case um yeah i have two examples the one is um i think through the work i've done in the past i kind of got very sensitive around the needs of the client so for example having a perspective on you know, something needs to be profitable. There needs to be a return on investment, um, time spent, expenditure of building stuff. You know, what How? What impact does this have on the business? And I, 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 I've I, managed to build an understanding around that. Also something that I'll never forget, and this is kind of a little story from my agency background, is that when digital strategy became a thing, like, ugh, like we need to do Facebook ads, guys, it's the thing. Um, I remember that uh, playing in that world, um, I was one of the only guys who understood the value of brand. So if you take a brand into a certain social media space or doesn't make sense to be there, and I think to distill it down to something that is maybe understandable or more relevant to someone listening to this is to, to actually have the ability to, to not do something. So I think if you have a, a broader perspective on things is that sometimes when you're in a silo, you want to do the best you can and you want to prove that your silo is awesome. But when you have a broader understanding of what's going on, you have this ability to say, you know what, like maybe we shouldn't be putting that button there, stupid example. Or maybe we shouldn't be doing something like this because it's not relevant for the greater good. And that's kind of where some of my examples uh, come from. Now, I'm going to chuck the ball straight back at you, Ahmed. Like, do you have any examples where you're going like, yeah, I got this because I put all this <laughs> shit down.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, first all, I'll say that I totally agree with what you guys have both like mentioned. Like, for me working with developers, it's almost like there's a bit of an initiation right that has to happen when I join a new team, and and they think that oh, there's a new designer on the team, and then like at some point in the first few weeks, I just basically make sure that I have time to go do some fancy shit in JavaScript so that they're like, okay, okay, we can take this guy seriously now. (laughs) And I'm like, hey, guys, I just made this, like, you know, like animator thing that, like, takes in these values and do, you know, oh, and I I put it all in a module, here you go. And they're like, oh, okay, so next time this guy tells us that this is possible, maybe I shouldn't tell him it isn't.
2: (laughs) My, My strategy is to go over to one guy with my stupid sense of humor and say, listen, dude, um, the printer is not working. Do you know how to fix it? <laughs> <laughs> True story. <laughs> we are still friends to this day. But yeah, I mean, I I buy into uh, I buy into what you just said. Yeah.
1: There's a, there's a different one that's kind of like I, I think I have to limit some of the details because it's still like too recent for me to just share every detail. But the the, the simple outline of the story. Uh, I was at 500px last year. So that's a photo sharing app that has a pretty good sizable user base. I think it's like 10 million user base, something like that. So back in like 2013, 14, this was like the hot new photo app, or at least one of the many on the market at that time. But obviously, we all know in the last five years, Instagram soared ahead to be, you know, a billion some users, while 500px uh, is, you know, that 10 million mark doesn't seem so big anymore. But I was there last year, and it was also my first experience kind of like designing at that scale at that, you know, user base size. But um, there was a moment when I was working with the product manager, and I sort of get handed a task um, to, like, sort of like have a kind of promoted boost type feature for, for people. And that way, it was a way to sort of generate a, du- a new revenue stream, because the advertising wasn't making much and subscriptions was the core part of the business when they were looking for ways to expand that revenue. So it was like, okay, well, what about like, yeah, boosted, promoted that kind of, you know, feature to to have a new revenue stream coming in. And that's where like me reading Stratechery, which is like a strategy technology blog by Ben Thompson. That's like me reading every single blog post by Ben Thompson for six years straight finally paid off. (laughs) I mean, it paid off in a lot of other ways, but I had like this like deep sense of like, business strategy in technology and how when we're building something like that we shouldn't just build it in the very short term to say okay well we need a little money so what can we do to make a little money it's like how does that play into our longer term goals how does that play into engaging our user base how does that sort of like create a a nice cycle that's going to do more than just okay now we're making these dollars
2: have you ever had an instance where it was it has been a bit of an achilles heel or a problem where you know, I mean, I looked at your profile. I mean, you definitely, one thing I love about what you've done is like, I develop, I design, I teach, right? Have you ever found that that is a problem where people go like, what does, what does this guy do? Like, how, you know, has, has that ever been a yeah, problem Yeah, all the for time.
1: Um, the biggest problem, not just that, okay, what does this guy do? What, you know, what should we hire him for, so to speak? Because at the very least these days, the last few years, I can say product designer, and I also do these other things. So at least there's a sort of headline for the title, so to speak. Um, But where I see that really being a huge problem for me is I'll, you know, have a have a meeting with someone, have an interview with someone and say, you know, here's what I'd like to do when I join your team. And so, for example, this has happened to me actually at three separate companies. So, you know, I was looking at a startup called AquaMobile that when I talked to the founder and she was like interviewing me for the position I was very clear that I really wanted to be involved in both development and design and to whatever extent possible knowing it wasn't my like background but you know I, I I did have like the financial economics degree that I could also whip out and say look I know what I'm doing when it comes to business even though I learned nothing from for that degree I learned it all separately but it's still like it's like look I know business I have a degree <laughs> So I told her, I was like, listen, here are my interests, right? I want to be involved in business strategy. And she said, well, that's great because we actually have this, you know, big expansion that we're planning. We're trying to figure out how to go to other sports and other activities and how to increase that. So that's great. That's so good that you can do those things. We need those things. And then I got hired and I just got stuck with development tasks for 12 months. I was like, what? Come on. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Same thing in like the designer job at 500px. It was very much like, yeah, you just, okay, we hired you as a product designer, we know you can code, but you're never actually gonna code once you got hired, yeah. even though we promised you you would.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but I think it's kind of a, it's a, it's a result of, our, uh, of the, the death or the, the dying of the industrial revolution, right? Because ultimately, is that the company structure is set up in such a way that they wanna put you into a little box. Um, and, 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 I, and I'm not saying this to disrespect, but I mean, they want to run a machine, right? So they need to let this let all the parts of the machine work together. And then they go, man, okay, this guy does a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of this. Okay, you can do all of that, no no problem. But then ultimately, someone's going to drop you into this little corner where they initially probably wanted to slot you in. And then you kind of get stuck.
0: I mean, if, if I see, the, um, since, since I've been freelance, I'd like... Co- I did, lo- I did logo typing. you know, at the very beginning, I needed to get money, so, hey, I can do logo for people, I did logo for people. I did pure development tasks, like I, I, had, a, I had a job when I was on the other side, I had a design from one guy in China, and they asked me, okay, we want this in React, I was like, okay. <laughs> so I had to, to build the code, host on GitHub, sell it, and, and all of that. The thing with development is that it pays very well and it's easy to find job, but unfortunately, this is not what I wanted to do with all my time. So, and I moved, and after that, after more struggles, I found like product, pure product design job, and I do think that the issue with product design as a whole is that it's became a, it's it's be, it's kind of the new webmaster, if I if I can say so. It's like, <laughs> yeah. It's like for people. For people, in this, initially, I think product design was used mainly by Facebook, and this is how they were calling their 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 people. So they, you will you will go for the funnel of recruitment on Facebook. You will get in, and if you weren't technical enough. They will send you to school for three months and you will become as good as designer, or you will have enough understanding of JavaScript and front-end development to be efficient on, on that scope too. And this is what we call product designer. And what happened is that because Facebook and Google adopted this this you no know, this nomenclature for their job, everybody else started to have product designers. But what I've seen in my ex-corporation is that we had people with the name product designers that Will never touch a line of code in your life. Like, a hey, never, ever. I don't even interested in it. But that's the new name for the job. So I, I, so when I try to when I try to sell myself or explain my skills, yeah, as as you say, I'm trying to figure out what problem do I solve, and I know what I do. I ship stuff. I you have an idea, and my goal is to help you ship that thing. It can be. It includes designing it. It includes working in development. Uh, it's including working with project managers. Project, um, project managers um, and I try not to use too much the word. If I have to introduce myself, I will try not to directly say, hey, I'm a product designer and I'm doing this and that. Except if you're talking with people from the same industry, then it's fine, you know. They know what you mean and it's so good. But if I am to introduce myself to somebody who is like, I don't know, a manager or or something in, somebody in sales, I'm going to tell him, product designer, he's just going to smile at me and be like, oh, you're a product designer. Very interesting. <laughs> and, and that's it. And he will not know what do you do, What why there is product in your name, what do you design exactly. Uh, and another thing, product designer originally was linked to like, you no know, art industry. Like they, when you say for all the people, all the folks, product designer, for them, you're doing things in, mat, in uh, 3ds Max, and you're doing actual physical things for them. This is those are product designers. So yeah, I, I do agree with your, your method of explaining what problem do I solve. And but you know, give it the name you want. I know what I do at the end of the day.
2: Jonah. so I wanna I wanna start wrapping this up, right? So we can do some actual product. Development work, right, and earn some money, so we can do this even more and sit around and flap lips. But I have a, I have a question for you guys, right? So, and I started with a, with like one of Vanna's ten million stories of the episode. So, um, yesterday, um, the the Polish mother-in-law Ahmed is quite an institution, right? So, uh, do not ever venture into the world of Polish mother-in-laws. It's it's a dangerous place. You don't want to go there. But my mother-in-law was here at at our place. And she was trying to explain to another Polish lady what I do for a living. It kind of, it was not, it it did not go well for me. I basically now in most of uh, uh, where I live in the little um, suburb that I live, uh, understand that I am a application developer. Um, This brings to my uh, my question to you, Ahmed. Um, What does your mom or your mother-in-law think like oh, I'm so do. glad
1: you asked because we've been going through this this last week actually. My mom is visiting and uh she she's always like for 8 years straight she's been like what do you do and then 3 months later what do you do exactly? So this last week she actually just asked me. She's like, "Okay, listen. I need two sentences that I'm going to write down so that whenever someone asks me, "What does your son do?" I just read these two sentences." <laughs> So she has it saved in her notes Boom. now. She has it saved in her notes. Ahmed is an application designer or an app designer who, who uh, builds apps for staffing agencies and their workers. And that's, that's her little what I read out to people who ask me what my son does.
2: <laughs> Dude, that's brilliant. Because deep down, she's worried. Like, she sees you traveling all the time and you, you're doing things yeah. with the computer, doesn't know what's going on. Like, what is this yeah. guy doing? Um, Jonathan, oh. what does your mom think you do?
0: I think it's... Lim- <laughs> I think this, this, for them, I was a banker. You know, I was working for banks. So when they, they were asked, oh, yeah. my son is a banker. And that's it. Since I'm freelance, um, yeah. basically I told them, I mean, I told them, it's more they, they created it. Uh, I mean, business development. Business debe- Development that's enough I'm, I'm not going to go more in detail with the ramps oh my son is in this. yeah that's that's good that's what i do yeah I, but in a way i mean that's not false at the end of the day so yeah let's go with that
1: <laughs> i've got an idea that i'd like to kind of suggest just like if we have a few minutes i i'm trying to build out our team at time saved and i'm also looking at you know having had this issue in the past what makes sense for a team and how do we hire and and what i've come up with and maybe other people have done something similar but Right now, you know, let's say like fairly traditional team look for a tech company is like you have marketing, you have, you know, design, front end development, back end development, um, you know, maybe mobile development. If you have, you know, native apps, Um, maybe there's like a sort of product team, like kind of managing both design and engineering. And then there's the rest of the company, like the sales and the business and the finance and HR. Well, let's just say that those kind of like more products related roles that we, over there. So one thing I noticed, you know, in, in the last job I had at 500px is that, you know, we'd have these like biweekly sync meetings, like product engineering sync meeting or design engineering or design marketing. And those sync meetings were kind of like other than random chats in the hallway and like, you know, project related work. We're really the only ways that we'd have any clue as to like, what is the marketing team up to these days? And they would know what we're doing, you know, on the design team and same with engineering. So, you know, what I've been thinking is like, why not standardize or like make official hybrid roles for someone who, let's say, is a design marketer and then someone who's a design developer and then someone who's a developer front end, back end, who's actually like, you know, full stack. There's very few really good full stack developers, but there probably is a lot of benefit to having at least one full stack guy on your team. So then there's always someone who understands the full picture, even if not in huge detail, but at least there's a bridge between every team to the next team. And then if there's a product manager, maybe like a product manager designer and a product manager marketer. So then you're kind of expecting there always to be some sort of hybrid in every team, linking it to the teams that need it the most. So I mean, what I'd like to do on my team is like, let's say, we've got a QA guy right now, and I would like to kind of see the, the QA team in the future has sort of like a QA developer. And that's kind of something we're actually transitioning one of the QA people to start working on front-end development. And who better to know what's wrong with the app, right? So. <laughs> So these kind of hybrid roles, bridging all the teams. What do you guys think about that?
2: I think your, I think I think your, I think your idea is spot on because I mean we've we've been talking about this whole idea of bridging and 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 having a, a wider array of um, of skill sets, right? But I think if I had to play devil's advocate and opening it up for your comment too, is that I think the, I mean number one, I think it's a great idea. Let's do it. I think the resistance you might have is, is that maybe on the business side, people will say, okay, cool. How do we measure this person's, you know, performance? Like, is it in a specific team or in in this team? So that kind of sounds a bit, that's solvable, I guess, but I think also from a personal perspective, you might find that for someone like me, it sounds super intriguing and exciting, but you might find that there are people like, let's say in your design team, who's going to be willing to let go of a little bit of his design to, to look at development as a as a kind of flow. So you might find that because they might be, they might be interested in it, but might be nervous about their future growth of their personal careers if they if they see their career as kind of a linear flow. They might be nervous, like, oh shit, like I'm actually, I want to walk the same road as Ahmad's done, right? I'm gonna do a lot of design work and again a senior designer and this, 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 and then I'm gonna be the head of the company uh you know now i'm going to do this hybrid role what happens when i go to the next company that i go to or you know how do i get promoted i think that might be a, a challenge you have to solve yeah
0: i i do agree i mean one of the main point of friction in any companies at the end of the day is um, responsibilities who at the end of the day responsible for what so is this is well defined i mean this is going to be more and more well-defined in the future, anyway, for process and for what we call, I don't know if you saw articles recently uh, this week, but there is an equivalent now starting in design. So you have DevOps for development, and they want to create design ops, which is basically that bridge we're talking about. And I think last week, no, it was last week. So Brad Frost, with uh, the guy that wrote atomic, uh, atomic Design, wrote an article about this very exact point. And that article was uh, the bridge between um, designers and front-end developers, so on, on that scope. And he was saying that he doesn't see both on the, on the longer term. <clears throat> it makes less and less sense for organization to have separate walls for those specific tasks, or at least uh, basically create what you're what you just saying. Create that track. You're going to be whatever the name you want to give it You will have that role, and you will be responsible for making sure that design and front end are in line, and that's going what you're going to do all day every day. Then you might have graphic designers, and their role is going only to be graphic design and icon and UI and all of that. And then you will have core developers, and they will make sure that the you know, the, technical, the most technical aspect of the code are going to be in line with the best practices in your field and are going to follow STLC and all of that. And I do think it's we don't have any choice at the end of the day because companies that don't adapt the way yours is doing are just going to lose on people like us. Because and it's... I'm going to sound very pompous and everything, but it's at the end of the day, it's us who are going to drive changes in design and the practices. It's people like Bart Foss that you're going to know, you're going to read, learn from, um, going to teach in conferences or anything. So yeah, I, I do I do support 100% this kind of initiative. I would say the only thing to make sure is where is my at the ending? That because I see friction and I see issues exactly at that point.
1: If you think back like eight years ago, 2010, 11, a front end developer was someone who knew HTML, CSS and a little bit of jQuery. Now a front end developer is expected to manage application state, is expected to have all of these robust ways of building all of this, you know, application logic that before that was a back end developer. That was the real engineer and the front end guy is the guy who knows HTML CSS. So now a front end guy is no longer that. It doesn't really like it's already kind of taken away from from what they used to do three or four
2: years ago, we had to do, we bul- We were building, sounds boring and insane, but we were building this framework on top of SAP. It was like a, it was like a, like a hybrid framework to do some applications or something. We were building in South Africa. And I remember um, I was the project manager on this thing and um, they were assigning a team to me to do that. And actually I had two people. I had a UX designer, a UXer. I had a little bit of time of like a backend guy, like a serious, like, but he was just there for advisory kind of as an analyst and then the front end guy was going to do all the work and he was doing all the work, right? I, and in my little peanut brain, I couldn't really like, but this is the front end guy, but he was actually going in there and plugging all the stuff in in the back end and, you know, like doing like, like the heavy lifting on this thing. I was, I was really surprised. So what you're saying like really resonates with like where things are going and yeah. I I don't know. Like, like if you had to introduce something into your th- I mean, you can't speak about your team to like, I mean, this is, is priority knowledge, but like, do you think your team will be open to doing something like that where they have cross disciplinary kind of exposure? And-
1: I think like one role at a time, like right now, the QA guy who's starting to become the front end developer as well, like that's already happening. It makes sense. And that's also like letting him grow to where he wants to go for the design team. Like I know for sure that I'm set on having like design developer hybrids pretty much the entire design team is going to be design developer hybrids maybe just like one or two exceptions that are more focused on research um when it comes to like full stack developer i think that's more of the sort of the senior engineer who we expect to to be full stack and then we don't really have much of a marketing operation yet so we'll, we'll see when it comes to that and we'll we'll kind of look at it there there's one more interesting one i just thought of on my team Uh, The customer success person does more UX research than I do.
2: Just to clarify, like understanding, because for me, customer success is usually like the biz dev guy or the account manager, the person who connects with clients, right?
0: So that means that your customer success people are basically quite, they really, how do they do that basically? Because I, I would imagine customer success folks being, you know replying to mails and saying, oh, it's all good, we are going to take care of that, and then forwarding the tickets on Zendesk or whatever to the going party. So what do we do in particular? How, do, how did you get them involved that much into UX?
1: I think for us, it's, it's like a bit different because we're not, we don't have like thousands or even millions of users. We have basically a few very large companies. So customer success in our case is more like managing that account, Making sure they're happy and understanding what they need at all times. So right now with just kind of like basically two of the initial big customers, that gives her a lot more time to like dive deep with each one and understand them better than anyone else on our team.
0: Yeah, so it's closer to what we have in, in investment banking, basically where we have those um, folk that we call account executive who basically manage the clients, but they make sure that you know everything is well, relationship is good, so. I mean there, there are some good side of of that wall when you're in uh, investment banking that inco- that include golf and uh, ski resorts and all of that uh, but yeah at the end of the day their goal is not to have fun with clients but just make sure in those informal contexts that everything is you know very smooth and everybody's happy and the client is going to win renew for us for those million dollars uh, projects yeah so again I I can see that happening in all space all spaces.
2: Yeah, their they, they, their big party budgets got cut. Now they need to do something. So, now, <laughs> <laughs> so now they have to do it. But I, I like that idea, and and the thing is, it kind of uh, it, re, it kind of aligns with what I've seen, and I've I've asked questions about this so many times for myself. Um, just thinking about some of what I've seen happening in, in the advertising agency world, where the customer success people were usually the people who got promoted to positions on client side where they become the marketing manager. And I could like, like for, for, for my sins, I would go like, but, but this is the, this is the one, this is the person who was sending the emails. I was doing all the work. Right. But in (laughs) fact, because they were sitting on this kind of artery of everything, right. So they were, they were organizing some, they were setting up meetings. They were doing the clients bidding and having conversations, getting an understanding of their business looking at what the teams are doing and managing the teams, they actually do have the deeper insight, you know? Um, so it kind of makes sense. I like that idea of like like letting them bleed into the research part, you know? They've got a bit of a vested interest, I guess. Good stuff. Thanks for taking it in that direction. I think it was valuable.
1: Yeah, of course. Thanks for the feedbacks.
2: Are you reading anything at the moment? Ahmed?
1: Uh, yeah, I'm reading a book called Behave. And um, it's really interesting because it's a, a neuroscientist who's basically explaining behavior from the the one second before you take an action and then zooming out, you know, what happened a few minutes before, what happened a few hours before. So he kind of starts with neuro neuroanatomy and how that affects that exact action and then zooms out to more like you know, in, in, internalized behavior that you've learned and then zooming out to like physiology and hormonal, be, you know, effect of behavior and then zooms out to like cultural, societal and, and further and like, you know, evolutionary. So it's just a really fascinating book.
2: Uh, if people want to go and snoop around a little bit and find out more about you and maybe follow you, where, where is the best place to know and get to know you a little bit better?
1: Uh, so I guess my Twitter or my personal website, um, both of them, like at Ahmed Kavum which uh, I suppose in the show notes would be a better place to spell that out. (laughs) For damn sure. (laughs) And uh, personal website, ah, ahmedkatham.com.
2: Cool. We'll post the links to that. And then um, um, what's next for you after? I mean, after the show, you'll probably go and do some work. But in the next few months, I understand you're going to be traveling again a little bit. Like what is is on the horizon for you?
1: Um, So I'm going to Vancouver on Friday for 10 days, visit some family. Then I come back for a few days and I go to Montreal for a month. Come back for two weeks, I go to Barcelona for two weeks, come back for four weeks, then I go to Mexico for the winter. Boom.
0: <laughs> Jonathan, over to you, sir. Yeah, I think it's so good. I was quickly, because that name, BA, if you told, the kind of reminds something in Sapolsky and Sapolsky. So Robert Sapolsky actually did two of the great course courses, you know, that series of... Uh, of uh, academic courses that are available on Audible, so and I'm seeing that two of the fall that I'm for um, that I'm following on Goodreads put five stars to that book, so it's definitely and it's already on my want to read book, so that's a side. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you thank you so much for joining us as our course yeah thank you guys something that we need to renew yeah
2: and we'd love to have you back when you have time again just maybe as a as a bit of a catch up when you're back after all your travels to to hear what uh, what insights you bring home
1: absolutely thank you so much for hosting me guys it was really fun
0: thank you have a nice one thank you Thanks for listening to Block Thinking. You can find more information and the show notes for this episode at www.blockthinking.com. That is blockthinking without the k.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe on iTunes or any of your favorite podcast platforms. We thrive on critique, so feel free to leave comments on iTunes or get hold of us directly. Thanks for listening.